Hey, welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast hosted by a couple of your favorite people from Philadelphia who are, of course, on the Movie John Network with tons of other wonderful podcasts that you should check out. So tonight we are wrapping up our conversation. (laughs) Tonight. Uh, Tonight for us. Tonight we are wrapping up our conversation about Nightmare Productions. Um, Before we really get too, too deep into this conversation, I just want to apologize up front. Um, The neighborhood children are out and about outside my house and they are having a really wonderful time. I can hear all of it. And um, I'm going to apologize if you can hear them in the background. However, I don't want to apologize if you can hear the one neighborhood child that sounds like Toad from Mario. Um, That is a gift for you. Uh, It's a gift for me always every time I hear this kid. So I hope you, you, you do as well. Anyway. Okay. So Nightmare Productions. Y'all, my pick for this is Poltergeist, and I cannot wait to talk about it, but um, I'd love to hear what my co-hosts have been up to, and if you've seen anything cool recently. I've got two things I want to talk about. One, I've been watching a show that many, many, many people in the world have been watching, and that is Mm. Netflix's Squid Game, um, which... The first episode really hooked me. I recommend anybody listening, do not watch the trailers. Uh, do not read anything about it. Just go in totally open. Um, first episode, probably one of the best first episodes of television I watched, at least in terms of like setting things up, engaging with the plot and really being interested and in continuing onward. Uh, watched it with some friends. We were FaceTiming each other. And so that's something we're going to be doing uh, a few times a week as we go through the show. And one thing that I learned was interesting, like the production history of the show is really uh, fascinating. The guy who wrote it for 10 years was trying to like pitch it. And at one point he apparently had to sell his computer. I think Dave, you were telling me this um, to, cause he just, nobody was accepting the pitch. So he had to sell his computer to buy food and pay rent. So he couldn't continue writing um, squid game. So really a long time in the making. And also this is a Netflix produced Korean show. Um, a lot of Netflix's shows and movies are licensed, meaning they're made by other production companies around the world, but Netflix went to South Korea to make this. And apparently they're making other films, South Korean films and shows as well over the next couple of years. So Squid Game, great first episode. I've heard the rest of it's very good as well. So I can't wait to dive in. And then I also watched the teaser, the brief teaser for HBO's House of the Dragon, uh, the Game of Thrones spinoff starring uh, Matt Smith as Damon Targaryen. And I keep saying Matt Damon. It's not Matt Damon. Matt Smith playing Damon Targaryen. Um, Brief teaser, show comes out next year. They're still filming. But I hope that this brings back some of the goodness of the peak Game of Thrones. And the showrunner and the main creative folks involved are like good friends with George, very loyal to the books. So I'm hoping that, um, and in the teaser, we see some things that are a little more book faithful that the show didn't do. So I'm hopeful Game of Thrones has burned me for many years, but I love it through and through. So hopefully House of the Dragon 2022 will be worth watching. I'm sure my folks are excited. They just uh, wrapped up Game of Thrones. And uh, like a lot of viewers were disappointed with the ending. I guess, but um, I would love to hear dad's thoughts if he wants to write in or text in. um, Well, speaking of other uh, long time coming HBO properties, I did watch uh, The Many Saints of Newark. Um, Huge Sopranos fan. Really love the show. Uh, I think it's one of the best shows that I know of and have rewatched the entire series earlier this year. 
Um, not in preparation for that. It just ha- so happened that this was the year that the movie came out. And um, uh, I thought it, I thought, I think it stinks. I think it's pretty bad. Um, I mean, uh, uh, I don't know. It just, um, it feels to me like uh, what happened was David Chase was really interested in and learned a lot about um, the race riots in Newark in 67 and wanted to make a film to that effect. And then like almost all of like Ridley Scott Prometheus was like, hey, while you're at it, you're kind of known for this thing. Why don't you make it about this thing? And then at the end of making Many Saints of Newark, it was just like, oh shit, I forgot to make my movie. But yeah, I found it to be pretty underwhelming. But, you know, check it out if you're a fan, I would say. Um, Did also... Oh, go ahead. I just wanted to say that it is quite possibly one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. You saying, I think it stinks. Just just stinks. (laughs) I mean, it doesn't suck. It's not terrible, but it stinks. It stinks. And did also, though, go back um, through... It's been a weird weekend. I, I went through uh, three P.T. Anderson movies in like a day and a half. Uh, that going back to The Master, which I adore. Uh, there Will Be Blood, which still holds up. Still my favorite. And uh, Punch Drunk Love, which I think is is all right. But doing that because of the uh, recently released trailer for Licorice Pizza, his film that's coming out this November that I'm really looking forward to. Almost like Many Saints of New York, Newark, it does feature... Um, a young actor uh, acting like for the first time and embodying the energy and channeling the energy and character pathos of their uh, dis- their late fathers. Um, it's going to be Cooper Hoffman, Philip Seymour Hoffman's son, taking the helm uh, as the lead. And uh, the photography of the trailer is incredible, as always, with PTA. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that story in that film this November. And in the meantime, we'll be rewatching all of his films. Yeah, I saw the trailer too, and I'm really excited. Um, it looks great. And uh, yeah, it looks like uh, the other lead is uh, like a Heim sister, like from the band. Yeah, I guess she, she, P.T. Anderson worked on a lot of Heim's like music videos, so she's going to be in it. So mm-hmm. they look like they're going to be a dynamic duo. So I fi- I'm so excited to say that I finally watched M. Night Shyamalan's new movie, Old. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, guys, hear me out. It's worth a watch. I I truly believe this. It reinforces, watching it reinforces my feelings. uh, And I know a lot of other people and critics have the same feelings that if M. Night just did not write the scripts for his movies and had somebody else handle dialogue, like character creation, he should just direct and be, I mean, he has a cinematographer, but be responsible for overseeing like shooting techniques and things like that, because this movie looks fucking amazing. And I mean, he does not create very compelling characters, but it also, it's all set on this one beach. So it sort of creates an absurdist stage play kind of dynamic and through most of the movie, you're like, what the fuck is going on? And it actually, that ambiguity really, really works in this movie. And he has some incredible shots and some really fresh, like, approaches to, like, following and watching the characters that are all, like, aging rapidly on this beach. The ending sucks. The dialogue sucks. But I really, there, there's something... There and I still am. I think M Night 
is trying new things, that's it, that's really exciting. So I would say if you have two hours to spare, check it out. I mean, it's not, yeah, I like found a streaming site that you probably don't want to use because it'll give you viruses. So maybe wait a couple months <laughs> until it's on a readily available streaming site. But it was compelling and M. Night still has it in him. Just don't write your fucking dialogue, dude. It's so bad. <laughs> That's all I have to say, but I'm so excited to have finally watched it. <laughs> it wasn't the wind this time, was it? So it had some, it had some, uh, are you referring to the happening and trees and shit? Yeah. So it had some happening kind of vibes, but it looks, I mean, the simplicity of the story actually worked really well and it, it's really shot uh, well. You know, he just, amongst like the dialogue and creating characters, his problems with his endings, I feel like is not just like an M. Night problem. Like that is a, a consistent problem that we see with a lot, a lot of famous directors and famous series that we all have come to love and then feel completely personally betrayed by. And I wonder like what the best ending we've ever seen is. Maybe that's something we can explore later because you know, maybe M. Night's got it. Maybe, you know, in the beginning he did. Who knows? Well, I'm always in favor of more ambiguous endings. And and if he had ended old 20 minutes sooner, it could have, I think, rocked people's world. But I think, part, you know, the ending, the twists are part of his brand. And either he feels like he needs to fulfill that or produ- or other people are like, you need to be in line with your brand, have a twist, all that stuff. So it just, but I, I, you're right, Sam, that's not just an M night problem. I think that's Mm. definitely uh, uh, a problem throughout the movie business, especially if you're known for a thing, you know, by contrast, I guess having recently just watched it and it being a bit biased because it is my favorite movie, the end of there will be blood. I'll put that real high on that list. (laughs) I think it, you know, deserves to be there. Um, I love that idea, Sam, as a theme. Sometime in the future, like movies with great endings. Like, I think that would be an interesting a, a kind of way to talk about movies we haven't really tackled yet. Yeah. I can't even, like, just, just in 30 seconds, I don't think I can really come up with one because it's just things are just so disappointing lately. <laughs> um, talk about things that are not disappointing. So um, I... I'm on a very weird, strange Tom Hardy kick. I, I think what happened is I accidentally got into an argument with a friend of mine about Tom Hardy. And it didn't need to be an argument, it, but he made it an argument. And since then, I have now gone down a Tom Hardy rabbit hole. I watched Capone the other day. It's fine. Um, Tom Hardy's great. That's what I've heard. Yeah, it's fine. He's great. Um I think he he does Capone a very good service. Um, but last night I watched the movie Warrior, which um, also stars Nick Nolte and Joel Edgerton or Elderton, uh, whatever, whatever. Um, apologies to Joel, but I doubt he's listening. Um, if you are, hey, um, it is so good. So the the premise of the movie is these two brothers grew up in a family that was like very focused on wrestling and eventually like MMA, like UFC fighting. 
and through life and other things, they both need to get back inside the cage. And um, Tom Hardy's character comes around from Pittsburgh. I, I think they're all like kind of from Pittsburgh. And then Joel's character comes around from Philly and they eventually go to the same kind of um, like no holds bar, big fat battle, whatever, whatever, whatever. And uh, it's so good. I wasn't expecting it to be that good. But um, yeah, watch it if you haven't. It's made me cry. I was like sitting on my couch weeping. And you know, well, I, that doesn't take much to make that happen for me, but still. <laughs> Had anybody seen that before? No. No, I, I'd heard of good things though. I really like Joel Edgerton because he pops up in a bunch of shit and has directed some stuff. And I feel like he's been kind of flying under the radar and he, he's great in Green Knight. Um, so I always am intrigued if he's involved in a project. Yeah. I think Sam, if we wind up, uh, you know, at some date down the road, having to happening to, uh, explore those sort of films, then, uh, I may have another one that might make you cry pretty hard. So we'll see about that. God. Okay. Can't wait to, can't wait to, to ever see what that is. Um, okay. <laughs> so sounds like we have an email. Yay. We do. Uh, personal friend to ourselves, longtime listener of the show, and has guested, guest starred on the show before. Our friend Alana has wrote us an email. Hey. Yay, Alana. My dear, oh, my dear Butter Bumpkins. I'm writing to you today <laughs> mostly because Connor is always like, write an email. And recently I was like, ooh, that's a thing I can do during work that isn't work. So here we are. But to answer a question that was posed directly to me via the podcast, yes. That question being from Sam, Alana, did you ever watch the DVD of The Mummy that you borrowed from me and had for like two years? So, <laughs> Sam, Alana did watch The Mummy. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for answering, Alana. I remembered that you did, but it took two years. Hey, you did it. And like, that's fine. I never put a time limit on there. I, I can't shame anybody when it comes to that because Sam, I had Beetlejuice for the longest time and Dave, I still have the master and we were texting about mm -hmm. it. Um, and you still haven't seen it. Connor. It's coming. I promise. I have an alarm still on my phone that says bring Beetlejuice DVD for Connor. I just like reuse my alarm <laughs> all the time. So I'm always reminded by the fact that it took you forever. I mean, fine. That's fine. How long has it taken me to watch sorry. episodes of Evangelion? I'm sorry, Dave. I'm sorry. <laughs> like, I get it. And we've got, we've got more email. Ooh. With your three-year anniversary having just passed, that means it's also the three-year anniversary of when I was asked to start a podcast with you guys. And I was like, I don't know. I'm just starting grad school. But now guess what? Grad school is pointless, but the podcast is going strong. So in an effort to write, to write in more in this email and subtly hint that I would like to join again as a guest star soon, I thought I'd share some of my top watches that got me through the pandemic and my best pitch for why you should watch them. Because they are things that truly brought me joy or gave me the real feels during this time. And then maybe if you want to pick one to do an episode about or have me on the guest star or, you know, whatever, it's chill, just a random thought. Okay, here we go. Television. Food Wars. Do you like anime? Do you like food? Do you like your anime about food to be deeply sexual? Because in the world of the show, when food is really good, your clothes just burst right off you. Then this 
then this might be the show for you. And that's not to mention that, that the lessons the show teaches about learning from failure and supporting and learning from others around you, I truly believe made me a better person has changed the way I approach art. Available in a few places as of this recording, depending on the season, you know, Hulu, Netflix, Country Roll, et cetera. Uh, I'm still has mentioned, that description. <laughs> she has mentioned Food Wars to me several times. And I've been really meaning to get to it. All right, next show, The Wire. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole joke now about how people who watch The Wire never shut up about watching The Wire, but I watched The Wire for the first time during the pandemic, and I mean, there's a reason for it all. Just the best writing and storytelling you probably ever encountered, and truly the best acting performance of all time for Michael K. Williams as Omar, who recently tragically passed away and needs to be more known as one of the greatest actors of his time. I echo that sentiment as well about Michael K. Williams. Agreed. Taskmaster. I know Christine knows what's up, and I've shared clips with Sam, but this British game show has brought me more joy throughout the past year than probably anything other than my cat. Do you want to see a bunch of British comedians, including some incredible faves like Mel Guideroke? I'm sorry, I don't know who that is. Noel Fielding from Bake Off. Lolly. Mel is the best. She's so funny. Yeah. Um, Lolly Adolfop from Shrill and Sally Phillips, who plays Mina and the Finnish prime minister in Veep, made to, made to compete against each other in insane, silly tasks. Would you like to join me in literally peeing myself for the first time since I was five and peed on my sister's hair because she made me laugh so hard? Then get yourself a pee jar, get yourself a pee jar and get thee to YouTube, where more than 10 seasons of Taskmaster await you, you lucky Lana. bastard. I don't, I, I love you dearly. You're one of my best friends. I don't want to pee on you. I'm sorry. <laughs> that description took a real turn. It really did. But please, and, everyone watch Taskmaster because it's amazing. And we've got one last TV rec here. Sex education. Hopefully you're already watching it, but if you're not, get thee to Netflix for Jillian Anderson and some of the best representation you'll see on TV in recent years, while also being deeply hilarious and very British. That's also another show I've been meaning to get to. And then we have three movies as well. Pride 2014. If you're, if you're ever like, man, I wish there was more coverage of the true story from when a gay and lesbian group in the 1980s Britain raised money for a group of striking minors because there's so much beauty and solidarity and shared struggle. And also could Bill Nighy, Andrew Scott and Imelda Staunton be in it? Well, have I got good news for you. Thinks it's Amazon Prime. In and of itself, part magic show, part experimental theater piece, part existential crisis. Derek Del Guido's, Del Guadio's In and of Itself was an off-Broadway one-man show in 2019 that Stephen Colbert saw and loved so much that he personally funded it being recorded and produced on film for Hulu. It's hard to saw too much except, it's hard to say, hard to say, except too much, just go, go and see it and have your mind fucking blown. Other people. Certainly the movie I haven't stopped thinking about since watching it almost a year ago. And one I am and one I'm almost nervous to recommend because it's so emotionally devastating. And I don't want to put anyone through that, through what the movie made me go through. But also more people should definitely know about that movie. Dave, that sounds like a movie right up your alley. It's a somewhat autobot that's that's me editorializing. <laughs> it's a somewhat autobiographical story of when the writer-director 
the writer slash director moved home to be with his mom while she was dying of cancer. Oh boy, guys, maybe skip this one if you like your moms, but also don't because it's Molly Shannon and Bradley Whitford and a bunch of other really wonderful people. And I mean, I'll never watch it again because I'm deeply traumatized, but by all means, everyone else should. I mean, that description had me sold. It's Dave, got Jesse Plemons in it, and I'll watch anything with Jesse Plemons. Oh, I love Jesse Plemons. Um, well, that's all I can come up with for now. Love to you and all the extended butter with that family, and I can't wait to party. And yes, obviously, party means watch more Neil Breen films with you all again soon. Mm-hmm. P.S. I realized now the last time I sent an email was when His Dark Materials was about to come out, and I was so excited, and it was a tremendous disappointment and made me want to die. Okay. That's all, Alana. Those are some great reps and some stuff I never heard of. Thank you so much for writing that email. Great, great recs. Oh, can't wait to hear uh, other people's emails and thoughts. <laughs> Keep sending them. Yes, Alana, we would love to have you back. On Yay. Oh, my God. Yes, it would be amazing. All right. So emails, recs, that's it. Right now, <laughs> yep, the episode's done. Thank you. For <laughs> um, all right, so time to talk Poltergeist and why I picked it for Nightmare Productions. So, Poltergeist, uh, came out in 1982, directed by Toby Hooper, maybe, and or Steven Spielberg. <laughs> uh, screenplay by Steven Spielberg, Michael, G- G- I'm sorry, Grace, Grass, who, I'm, apologies, Michael, wherever you may be. Again, if you're listening, tell me. Um, wait, that just reminded me. Never mind. We can talk later about that. The The response we got to an episode... Yeah, well, yeah, we'll have to have a couple of conversations about that, probably. <laughs> yeah, probably. Anyway, 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 then I'm just that's just teasing some stuff in the future, folks. Um, Michael, whoever, and then Mark Victor, story by Steven Spielberg, um, starring Steven, Steven, starring Steven Spielberg. Just kidding. Um, Craig T. Nelson, Joe Beth Williams, Beatrice Strait, Heather O'Rourke, Dominique Dunn, Oliver Robbins, and Zelda Rubenstein. Uh, the budget for this movie was about $11 million, and it was a box office uh, office success, obviously, um, nearly $122 million made. So synopsis for those folks who perhaps have not seen Poltergeist before. Uh, I stole this from Rotten Tomatoes. God bless you, Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, strange and creepy happenings beset the Freelings when ghosts commune with them through the television set. Initially friendly and playful, the spirits turn unexpectedly menacing, and when Carol Ann goes missing, parents Steve and Diane turn to a parapsychologist and eventually an exorcist for help. Now, uh, has everyone seen Poltergeist before this episode? Yes, yeah. many times. Yeah, yeah I feel like, yeah, th- th- that feels exactly right for how I kind of felt about Poltergeist too. Do you remember when the first time you saw Poltergeist was? I definitely remember being very young because there is the scene that I'm sure we'll cover in the kitchen with the um, the kind of like mirror with this this weird like kind of hole in a character's face that they like can't help but prod at. And as a result, they tear their own face off or at least so it seems through this like, you know, um, paranormal uh, phenomenon and like uh, a fake out. But 
for like at least a year after seeing this movie, I was like tremendously nervous around mirrors in particular. So it definitely made an impact at a young age. I don't remember when I saw it, but I was very afraid of it. I think I must have been, I was young too, maybe like fourth or fifth grade when I first watched it. I Maybe I watched the whole thing, but I distinctly remember the last like 30 minutes of the movie, especially spoilers, but uh, when the closet kind of opens up and there's all this goo and all this like organic material coming out of it, the face and this monster. Uh, I remember like that being absolutely terrifying, but also like thrilling at the same time, which I think is a, a big strength of this film. And I also remember the ending. Now we're cutting to the end where they're at the motel finally and the dad wheels the TV out. Uh, and it's like, oh, I was like, my mom, I was like even in the second or third grade. It's like, why did they do that? It's like, oh, remember at the beginning of the movie, the TV's how they did it. So he's like, you know, Steven Spielberg's bringing it full circle. And I was like, ah, movies. So like I, that's like a very- Someone's teaching you elliptical structure in real time. Yes. <laughs> so that's a very distinct memory. And I think at the same time, did, you, did your school ever do the like jump rope for America where you had to like raise money and you'd get like stupid t-shirts or like stupid things for, like this fundraiser? I don't know. If you ever heard of jump for America or do jump rope challenges and sell like crappy stuff to your neighbors. I also, that's like tied to poltergeist because that was happening at the same time as this memory. We had to sell uh, Christmas wrapping paper to our neighbors. That was always the thing. We sold bogeys for the school band, and it, we did really well. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. But it was always for, like, a yo-yo. You know, it was, like, never for something good. Just a yo-yo. Like the Scholastic Book yo-yo. Challenge, too, is kind of oh, like this, that. Yeah, the Book that's Challenge. About. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, my God, like the Pizza Hut Buckets. Do you remember those? Anybody mm-hmm. else have a pizza? Okay. Yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Christine, how do you remember how old you were when you first saw Poltergeist? I don't think I was too young, but I think I was maybe like, I think, I think it was probably friends wanting to do a, like a horror movie marathon, uh, like in maybe middle school or high school. So we did the poltergeist and I remember it being quite startling. I, the scene Dave highlighted was the same scene I always, that always was seared in my brain. The, the sort of maggot filled meat uh, sort of blooming in the most disgusting way and the guy's face deteriorating. But it had been, it, yeah, it had been a while since I had watched it. And so it was it was definitely a really interesting and fun rewatch um, most recently. Yeah, I was just wondering because like I also saw this movie when I was super young and the only thing I really remember from it is of course like the muddy pool scene with the real human remains uh that will forever be seared into my to my mind to my retinas there are some days where i'm just like innocently driving to work and i like see it and like, you know you ever have one of those things maybe not poltergeist but like other things in your life usually it's just memories i have that bring me a lot of anxiety that <laughs> and give me just as much horror and then i utter and i'm like just just let it fall back into your brain yeah usually something else like i've done in life I'm like oh god i yeah, said this yeah. yesterday exactly <laughs> yeah well i so i asked this question because so often we watch movies as kids and things are terrifying and then you watch it again as an adult and you're like eh, it doesn't really hold up any longer and when i mean i have seen poltergeist like a lot but like rewatching it again for for the podcast i was like no man this movie still is 
frightening. I still feel like it really holds up. And, you know, I wonder, is that, is it nostalgia? Is it like the simpleness of the movie? Like, I don't know. I don't know if anybody has thoughts around that, but it's something I've been thinking a lot about. I think it's definitely an element of that the film is genuinely frightening at times, but it's also a horror movie that has an awful lot and a very expressed amount of heart as far as the family is concerned, as far as the family unit is concerned and their interactions with one another and the strength of their familial bond. I think it's really pronounced in this movie uh, in a way that, you know, as I know you have in your notes as something to briefly cover is, is whether or not this is, you know, one of horrors, more blunt and brutal masters, Toby Hooper, or maybe someone like Steven Spielberg, as far as who is actually directing the film. But um, I think it, it translates a lot of both. It definitely has a lot of the strength of Hooper at the height of his powers, as far as visual and visceral horror is concerned, but also the warmth of the Steven Spielberg picture, which is really familial and very much about people's relationships. So I, I think it's a little bit of both that makes this movie hold up so well. So Toby also, Hooper did uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, right? The original. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Texas Chainsaw 2. He did, um, was credited with this, uh, went on to make several other horror movies. The Mangler with uh, Robert England, which is a pretty ridiculous movie. But um, yeah, definitely a, a known quantity in the horror field. The Mangler, no relation to... I'm the Mangler from my demon different Mangler. Mama. Yeah. <laughs> and a better movie. If you ask me, I think this movie has aged tremendously in almost every way. There's a few shoddy, like CG moments here or there. Like those are, I think generally pretty forgivable because most of the effects are very well done. And it's just feels so much different, you know, much more di- different than like a, a 24 Blumhouse, um, James Wan, like a lot of horror movies that we have had over the past decade, I was amazed by like the sense of wonder that's present. That it's like, you know, Spielberg's so good at tapping into this sense of wonder of like a family, like playing with the poltergeists and like being really inquisitive about it. And, you know, it's, it's not, of course you have the scary demon devil demonic element, but you also are dealing with like lost souls traveling through, you know, an unknown part of like time and space. And it's just really, I feel like tackling a haunted house movie and so many different angles that are just not touched on today. And I feel like if this movie was released today, it would do once again, absolute gangbusters because it just feels so different than I think a lot of horror that at least I've been watching over the past decade and been thinking a lot about James Wan after watching Malignant. So it was kind of interesting pairing that, you know, just roughly watching that movie and then like two weeks later watching Poltergeist. Connor, do you mean this movie exactly or Poltergeist again? Because they did do that in 2015. And when I was doing my research, the Russo brothers are apparently remaking it again. I am aware of that 2014, 15 remake. Um, I haven't watched it, refused to, it looks absolutely terrible <laughs> and maybe not released in its exact state, but at least the idea of like, this is something so not, I feel like what studios are producing these days in terms of the horror genre and also a cheap budget as well. And so it's not, you know, horror movies have had cheap budgets for a very, very long time. That's not a new idea. That's the um, idea of even, horror movies. Yeah. Right. And so, but this movie does not feel cheap at all. One or two effects here or there. But generally, um, as Dave mentioned, the heart, I think, really propels this movie that is lacking um, in a lot of horror movies today. 
And I think all, I what I when I was rewatching it, I thought, wow, things and elements that I thought were scarier. I remember being scarier when I watched it. Didn't feel that terrifying. I, I and I was like, hmm, I wonder. You know, I guess I've gotten older, and I guess a lot of the horror movies I watch today have the you know more sort of jump scares and things like that. But what I what really stuck with me was the themes throughout the whole movie and like sort of a redefining of like what horror is and like you like themes of like this sort of destruction of this suburban ideal as this family is being torn apart because their entire housing development is on a on series of cemeteries in like arid land that should probably not even be like overdeveloped like it is like there's just so many wonderful themes that the movie brings up and like examines horror sort of through different lenses and there's just uh and i should say also some of the uh, scenes are remarkable in how good they look and add to a feeling of horror specifically the scene when the mother is in bed and is crawling uh, or uh, is being possessed and is crawling up the walls on the roof or on the ceiling back down the wall and from what I understand they built a rotating set to be able to film that shot and I'm like people were freaking out when Christopher Nolan did it but Toby Hooper and Spielberg were doing this, you know, decades earlier, and it looks absolutely remarkable. And they also did it two years before Nightmare on Elm Street, more famous, more iconically did it. So okay, I didn't that, that to their yeah. credit too. Yeah, I didn't. I haven't seen Nightmare Nightmare on Elm Street. I guess in a long time, but so I guess it was a thing that was. Being I think done they may have used the same the rotating room actually. That oh, was built, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. It's so but. hard because this movie is like so ingrained, I feel like, in just like American pop culture that <laughs> these scenes have been parodied so often. I'm thinking about the one in scary movie too. And I'm just like, God damn it. Like now I can only think about this scene and that scene sucks and I'm mad because this is so good. But I, I just yeah, scary movie too ruined a lot of things for everybody. It sure did. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. It did. But Christine, I think that you brought up a really good point about the, you know, building suburbia on top of life that has already lived and uh it's a good kind of transition to why i wanted to talk about poltergeist for nightmare productions so something that was not new to me is this idea of a curse on the set of poltergeist and so first of all do you guys believe in curses and ghosts and things like that tell me tell me your deep dark secrets here do you believe in that stuff I will provide an outright and rather stern no. Okay. <laughs> I do I do not believe in those kind of things, personally. Personally, me neither. I think our brains are really good at, at finding pattern. You know, we're designed to find patterns and coincidences can be very powerful. And if enough people are influenced to think that some things are happening because they're happening a certain way, then that can maybe manifest itself in the decisions people are making. Uh, but n- no. But I love hearing about them and learning about them and thinking about them. Yeah, I think I just love a good ghost story, you know. And that's right. As Connor said, humans desire patterns, desire narratives, desire 
finding truth and meaning and ghost stories can be a great way to uh, sort of explore those narratives. Yeah. I mean, how, yeah. Who hasn't encountered a ghost, right? Uh huh. Um, I I so desperately want to believe, right? Like I I love watching ghost stuff. My roommates and I we watch like this one YouTube account all the time. Um, we watch like the ghost shows, and I sit there and I'm always like, yeah, I want to be spooked. And then I'm like, I don't believe in that. That's faked. That's not real. And I'm like, just once, just like let yourself. Like think like maybe maybe this is possible, but ultimately I can't. So all right, sounds like we have four skeptics here, which <laughs> sounds about right. Um, so the the poltergeist curse factor fiction. Um, like I said before, when we were talking about nightmare productions, this one jumped to me basically as soon as you said it because of this uh, infamous curse. Um, I remember the the curse being uh, a lot more detailed and involved than when I was doing my research than it actually was. And I was like, oh, dang it. I feel like I picked this and I don't have anything to show for it. But I do remember a lot of like documentaries and even some like the most recent podcasts that I mentioned uh, that I've listened to lately um, talking about this. And they really focus in on what's happened to the cast in the, the franchise, not specifically just focusing in the the first movie but so so what the curse is really getting at is um the deaths of several cast members that have happened um I guess in between filming so what was that filming begins like 80 81 until the the last movie is released which is in what like 87 I think or 87 or 88 and within that time period I think four of the cast members um die uh one person dies horrifically and is murdered and the other three die from what wikipedia calls long-term illnesses now there is some like suspicious details with some of those things that i thought were spicy enough to mention so the the four folks who unfortunately pass in that what's it like seven or eight year period um dominique dunn who is um one of the daughters one of the freeling daughters um heather o'rourke who plays carol ann the the youngest freeling daughter and then julian beck and william will sampson um the those two folks are in poltergeist 2 which i have to say i've never seen um okay which is uh sounds like most people <laughs> haven't seen it since it was moderately successful. I think it was like maybe half the success rate as the original Poltergeist. But anyway, so the Dominique Dunn, I think is perhaps if there is to be a curse, maybe hers fits that the most. So her story on October 30th, 1982, um, Poltergeist comes out summer of 1982. So it's really, I think about four months after it premiered, Dunn was attacked by her ex-boyfriend, John Sweeney. Uh, he strangled her in the driveway of her own home. Um, it's said that she went into a coma during the attack and never regained consciousness. Uh, she died five days later on November 4th at the age of 22. Um, Sweeney was convicted of voluntary manslaughter and served three and a half years in prison. And, um, you know, 
Dominique, she was 22. So this was her first theatrical release. It does look like she had a few other TV credits to her name and she had just gotten cast in a series that um, when I looked up on Wikipedia and other articles that she was actually rehearsing for before her boyfriend, her ex-boyfriend called her and attacked her. So that's horrific. And um, it sounds like their relationship the whole time was pretty... Um, pretty intense, pretty tumultuous. So um, it it almost sounds like no surprise that it ended the way that it did. And I, this might seem sound crass um, coming in a, a podcast where I've just been like laughing about certain things. But, um, you know, when you talk about issues of domestic violence and domestic assault, like I always think it's really important to recognize just like you never know who's experiencing these things. And it could be someone who you live with. It could be someone who you live next to. It could be someone famous that you don't think about that often. Um, but regardless of who it is, you know, if anyone who's listening to this podcast now is someone who experiences those things, um, I just want to say that the only person you need to care about is you. Um, and there is always someone out there to help you. So um, the, the National Domestic Violence Hotline, the number is 1-800-799-7233, or you can text START to 887884 for help. Um, I know that sounds strange coming in like a podcast. It's meant to be funny, but these are real things that happen in our real lives. So I just want to acknowledge that like, this is horrific and horrific things happen. Particularly we've seen things happen like this during the pandemic, when people are stuck inside together, we know that rates of domestic violence between partners and um, like child abuse, like have skyrocketed. So if any time is important to pay attention to your neighbors and to each other, like this is it. But outside of Dominic's, uh, Dominique's unfortunate passing, we also have Heather, Heather O'Rourke. Um, for some strange reason, like I confused her with, if you've ever seen Land Before Time, um, the actress who voiced Ducky, I for Ducky, some strange yeah. reason confused the two. And I was like, oh yeah, like two people in the cast were like murdered by people who were close to them, but that's actually not the case. And I was 100% wrong. Um, with yeah. Heather O'Rourke, were any of you like, uh, like in the know about this for a while? Like, obviously I was surprised with it, but I only looked at, or when I knew you were doing this for Troubled Productions theme, that's when I had learned about it. I didn't know any of this backstory. Yeah, I knew a bit of this backstory going back to the film's production and the production of the subsequent sequels, especially um, how poignant and uh, troubling it was to the people that knew and worked with her as a professional actress on the third film, which I'm sure we'll get into as we start unfolding her unfortunate uh, situation. Yeah, I mean, like, God, this is such a bummer, right? Like, you know, we have such a, a, like, incredible, fantastic movie that has so many things I want to talk about. But, you know, <laughs> I don't believe in curses, but this sucks, right? Like, this absolutely sucks. And so Heather O'Rourke, she was diagnosed with Crohn's disease after contracting um, Giardia from well water at her family's home in Big Bear Lake. Um, she had been prescribed cortisone injections to treat Crohn's. Um, and this was right around the time of filming Poltergeist 3. And Dave, I think that that speaks to a little bit of some of the, the trauma and experience that she went through and people who worked with her on that film um, probably experienced in and it of itself. Yeah, big time. I mean, um, you know, as, as I'm sure we're going to cover in just a moment, she did pass 
pass away uh, as a result of a misdiagnosed illness and basically just sort of like a medical snafu of sorts. Um, but the crew working on Poltergeist 3, at the, which would have been shot at the time of her passing, she was in the majority of the film. Uh, they were nearly finished with the film and the director and crew of the film were so distraught by the situation that they were, they were pretty well prepared to abandon the project, like all together. And it was at the studio's urging that they continue to finish the film, including a stand-in for uh, O'Rourke because it was necessary to the res resolution of the plot and the script. Um, but if you watch the film, that actress, the stand-in actress's face is never seen. And it's very clear that they worked around this unfortunate death within the cast and crew. And it's it's really, if you watch, uh, there's a Shutter series called Cursed Films that explore films that have a supposed background in being cursed. And, and in particular, this is a really interesting one because it seems as though everyone on the cast and crew decided that that was not at all the case and that the notion that it is a cursed film production, specifically because of the skeletons, which we'll get to, is uh, disingenuous to a degree that it's uh, it's a little insulting to the people who died. Tragic and horrific deaths uh, that were in no way related to the production of the film. Um, so I think, yeah, it's... It's really interesting. This story in particular is really interesting in how it clearly impacted uh, not only the people working with her directly throughout that that film, the third film, the third installment, but uh, also the reputation of the film itself. Mm -hmm. Right. Like it almost completely changes the way that this film is perceived forever. And that that really stinks. So um, she. God, I like, I hate, I, I, I almost hate that I picked this, honestly, because I have to talk about these things. Um, so on February 1st, 1988, Heather collapsed while she was at home. She was rushed to the hospital and she went to our, uh, emergency surgery for intestinal stenosis. She survived the surgery, but suffered a, a cardiac arrest while she was in the recovery room. She had already had one during transport to the hospital. And that's what ended up um, being a kind of like the, the final blow. Um, it's hard. It's hard, right? Like she was 11 or 12 years old. Um, that is an awfully short life to live. And so it's difficult to talk about these things. Um, in the notes here, I have David Hollander, head of gastroenterology at the University of California, Irvine Medical Center stated that O'Rourke's death was distinctly unusual as she lacked prior symptoms of the bowel defect. He continues, um, I would have expected a lot of digestive difficulties throughout her life, not just to have developed a problem all of a sudden. So she was diagnosed with Crohn's disease and Giardia in 1987. She died like less than a year later. Um, clearly there was, there has to be something else. I have so many people in my life that have Crohn's. I know other people who had Giardia, like these things are serious issues, but if you diagnose them correctly and you treat them correctly, this doesn't have to happen. Um, and so Dave, you, you mentioned like, her being diagnosed incorrectly. Is there more to that story? Well, as I understand it, it was a misdiagnosis of Crohn's disease and it was, it was being treated as such, but in, in fact, it was an abdominal uh, abscess uh, that was restricting the digestive process and causing sepsis. And that abscess basically, uh, and the resulting pressure causing a burst uh, mm -hmm. internally, that was largely the catalyst for uh, a steady decline of uh, compounding symptoms. 
Yeah. And I mean, like the surgery she had for intestinal stenosis, like I looked that up. So I know like <laughs> doctor, but it's like a, a narrowing of the passageway. So like, if you've got an abscess and like, then you also have the narrowing of the passageway, like that's, that's it. Right. Like that's it's very serious. Yeah. Yeah. That's very serious. Those are the ingredients to make fire. So it's just really, really upsetting. And, you know, to me, what Dominique and Heather's deaths show for, for me at the very least is that women, regardless of what age, just like need to be heard more. And I think that medical care in uh, for women is something that seriously still needs. Um, one, doctors to take women seriously. Two, more understanding of what's happening with women's bodies. I was incorrectly diagnosed with something and then not treated properly. And my life was hell for a very, very long time. I have like some serious trauma around doctors now, and it's taking me a lot of therapy to get over. So like, these are super, super real issues. And so Dave, the, the point that you brought up before of how, you know, saying this, the, the idea of this curse like really takes away from the death and the passing of these people, I think is like such a, a great point that I'm glad you made. And it's not my point to make. Also, I will say that it is largely actually Zelda Rubenstein who made it a point in an, in an interview following the third film to say like, I, 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 and this is not verbatim, but something to the effect of like, look, you know, these, these people, these, uh, these actors, they, they were people and they died unfortunate and preventable and horrific deaths. And to blame, and I do remember she specifically said to blame their deaths on this crap quote is disingenuous and does their their lives not only as actresses but as human beings a disservice in taking into account the reality that you know that as Sam as you as you've mentioned women face uh, as far as like medical biases and so on, but but just in terms of uh, yeah in terms of magical thinking in terms of like there being this all encompassing explanation of like a, a curse origin rather than perhaps the more practical application of shit happens and how that makes the story of their lives and deaths uh, mystified in a way that's inappropriate and distasteful to the lives that they lived. Yeah. I hear that. I really do. Sometimes like thinking about the way people cope, I'm wondering if, and like, what do you, what, I, I want to hear what you folks think about this. The deaths of these folks is just like so heinous, right? And like, so it like it, preventable, it didn't have to happen. Um, these two in particular were just so young that people are trying to find ways of rationalizing it and explaining it. And that's where this idea of like a curse comes around, not trying to excuse it or in any way, but could that be a reason or is it a little bit more like nefarious than that? I think there's a harmlessness to seeking explanation in the abstract in the face of trauma and loss. I, I definitely understand that uh, even though I am myself as I've established pretty, a pretty hard skeptic surrounding those kind of ideas, but I understand why people gravitate toward them. It's a sense of meaning and explanation for, um, you know, the, the unanswerability of life and, uh, and certain scenarios. But uh, I think that the curse idea is more not sinister, but tasteless. I think it's more just sort of like, you know, uh, sort of like keep, keeping a running tally of like, 
oh, see, this film did this. And that's the explanation rather than it being about grief or loss. It's also something that we've seen like, I mean, you know, this film is considered a curse, but we don't consider the series Glee cursed. And that's involved a lot of horrific deaths that uh, that are all all pretty, pretty horrible. And but we, we don't talk about it that way, maybe because it's not a horror film. Right. Like the idea that only a horror movie can be cursed. And like the exorcist is like, or the omen. It's, it's all these ideas that you're tampering with the unknown, which is a real specter in, you know, phenomenology. And by committing it to film, you are uh, bridging a gap, allowing for, for horrific things to happen. But uh, I think that that's, uh, I personally find that to be a very naive stretch. And I think that I have no idea in the case of Poltergeist in this, but you know, around the Conjuring movies or these other movies like, oh, people's hard drives got erased or doors kept banging as the writers were working on it or part of the tape got lost. It's like, I feel like sometimes nowadays the idea of like a ghost haunting a horror movie is like just so bleh and just like marketing nonsense. Yeah. And you know, like- Which is a shame because it's a great movie. (laughs) The Conjuring. Oh, well, yeah, the Conjuring's pretty good. I'm talking about Poltergeist, I guess. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so let's, right. Like, I I totally agree with what everyone has been saying. And where did this idea of a curse actually come from? So um, something I think we've brought up a little bit before is the actual human remains that the film used in the infamous pool scene. So... It's my understanding that um, the the regular people like us found out about this particular bit of movie trivia from Joe Beth Williams. Um, there have been a lot of interviews with Joe Beth, um, and she. I have the quote here. Um, sounds like she really leaked this bit of information, saying, "In my innocence and naivete, I assumed that these were not real skeletons. I assumed that they were prop skeletons made out of plastic or rubber. I found out." as did the crew, that they were using real skeletons because it's far too expensive to make fake skeletons out of rubber. That is absolutely vile. And, um, you know, like it's like, in my perspective, it's no better than what um, the real estate company or the developing company had done to um, like build suburbia on top of all of these people's graves. Like I, I just don't see the difference there but I found another interview with Joe Beth Williams talking about Will Sampson so Will Sampson is also someone who passed I he he passed I think in 87 um now this he passed from a chronic degenerative autoimmune disease that he had had for a while um and he died after surgery, actually. But during the filming of Poltergeist 2, um, Joe Beth said that he performed an exorcism on the set. And he went to set um, one night by himself because the crew was like so unsettled by the fact that like the first movie did use those human remains, perform the exorcism. And then the next day, everyone felt better. Everyone was fine. So it's just like so interesting to me that it almost feels like a lot of this folklore can come back to Diane, which is so like so strange that it's from a star of the film. But is that fair to say? Or is it more like 
the media and people who are like vultures and interested in this stuff, like like me. I think it's definitely in part, as she says, her own naivete, because something that not a lot of people know is that ske- human skeletons are often used in making films. Like that's that's not it wasn't like this. This was the first movie to do that. And therefore it was this this curse. Like if you go back, like even just a few years earlier, like uh, like maybe like I think it might be like a year or two earlier. If you go back to uh, Temple or not Temple of Doom, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, another Spielberg picture. They're using human remains. If you go back to Apocalypse Now, another uh, uh, obviously infamously cursed production, but that because of a lot of other reasons used human remains. If you go back as far as like the 1930s, Frankenstein and uh, House on Haunted Hill, the original one, it's not an unusual practice to use human skeletons and remains in film. So I think the range a curse attached to this film on the basis of that is a bit ignorant of the re- relatively common studio practice of using skeletal remains. I think what also doesn't help Poltergeist is that the plot hinges on the curse of like an indigenous burial ground. It's definitely, yeah, there's definitely yeah. some like meta piling in yeah. that regard for sure. Which I kind of love, but also like, of course, like, of course, this movie would gravitate toward, you know, using the skeletons, being built on graves, like playing into this idea. Um, did no favors. And it's, I mean, there are just mm-hmm. scores of interviews because it's an insanely popular, you know, classic film. And also because of this legacy of this curse that we've been discussing of just, he said, she said, and you know, people saying one thing, people saying another, which I think just all adds fuel to the fire of what actually happened and what the cast, how the cast and crew felt and you know, how that got warped as time went on and what people want to believe. I think that's a really important part of, you know, curse folklore too, is what people want to believe. Find company. I was, you know, kind of already touched on that idea. Yeah, that's so true. Like, you know, I'm a big fan of true crime and so often I find myself wondering like, is this okay? Like, yes, I'm interested in, in death and dying, but the fact that I'm like, buying books and like listening to podcasts about these things like am i perpetuating these like clearly like systemic problems that i i think like movies and tv shows even in like deal with today or is this another one of those things that you can say you know as as long as you acknowledge that these problems exist like you can still enjoy something that's problematic i i really don't know but you know, Connor, you said legacy of the curse. And I kind of, this episode has been like a little bit of a bummer talking about young people dying and just like death in general is never something that's fun. Um, So I want to leave this episode with remembering and like acknowledging the legacy that like should be talked about and should be the first thing that comes up when you Google poltergeist movie and poltergeist production rather than the curse. So the legacy of this movie as being one of the like best horror movies of all time. Let's talk about that. Like what should the legacy of this movie be? For me, it's, I think one of the most interesting things about the production of this movie is uh, the Spielberg and Hooper dynamic 
um, this question of who actually directed the film, because as uh, Sam, you you listed it in your notes, and as uh, I uncovered in some of my digging as well, is this notion that uh, Spielberg was on a non-compete clause when making uh, E.T. and therefore couldn't get this film that he wanted to get made made. So it was, Hooper was attached basically as sort of a de facto produ- uh, director. But it's really interesting if you watch, because like, as I mentioned before, you can really see who directed which scene because they're both at the height of the craft. It does. And and that's probably for me, the real legacy of this movie is the, the merger and marriage of very heart, uh, very heartful, heartful, uh, um, warming, very heartwarming, very, uh, sentimental, very, very tender, very emotional, familial unit, uh, which is very Spielberg and them competing with, this kind of horror and Christine touching bow on what you, you said earlier in the episode is that I do think I agree in the terms of this film being diminishing returns a little bit each time as far as the horror elements, because I did see it so young and because the horror scenes did have such an impact, but I can appreciate the movie now in this as just as much, but in a different way as the horror starts to fade away and I start to appreciate its warmth, which is a really is something I can't say about almost any other horror movie. And I think there are still scenes that in a very uh, simple but super effective way maintain tension and maintain this sort of possibly more horrifying undercurrent of threat, like which you're not maybe every scene visually uh, being like horrified with jump scares and grotesque stuff, but there's this more maybe subtler but more deep undercurrent of like holy shit what's going on and i think that some not only techniques like the i love that rotating room i mean that visually just looks Mm -hmm. awesome but every scene with the tv from the very opening scenes uh where the dad is asleep and the girl walks down and is just sitting right in front of the tv and then you not only get this terrifying static of the tv and that kind of sets the tone of the movie but every scene you see sort of these pulsing lights that are coming from the staticky tv and that's such it's a simple but really really striking and effective way to con- to um to kind of evoke and suggest element you know otherworldly elements or even just uh tension just to build it, like to build tension into another scene. And, and I really loved all of that uh, sort of lighting, like the, the pulsing TV uh, moments. Yeah, the simplicity of it is, yeah, I've started to watch like the first two and a half episodes of Midnight Mass on Netflix. And I, and I watched it because like so many people were saying that, ah, yes, this, this show has reminded me of things that I have not been afraid of in a very long time. So I was like, oh, something that's going to scare me. And I'll tell you what, the, the show does use just like very small, unsettling techniques. And it has freaked me out more than anything I've watched in a very, very long time. And so I think like, you know, that could be poltergeist's legacy of just, you don't need to to throw millions and millions of dollars into special effects and into all of these things that don't matter. Focus it on a family that love each other and that have like these really terrible things happen to them. And and like the, the, the love of one another is like what gets them kind of through it. Simple enough. But there's... There's also some great elements where, I mean, again, connecting to the, the theme of TV and television where the TV's broke or like on the uh, sort of 
it's not white noise, but like the static, uh, the classic static uh, TV that's off a channel and the girl's staring into it. And then the mom comes up and she's like, that's going to like, like ruin your eyes or that's going to impact you. I can't remember. She says, rot your brain or impact your eyes. So she turns it onto an actual channel that then is playing like a, like a war movie in the middle of this gruesome battle scene. And it's just so, it's a wonderful uh, moment of good writing and sort of a good shift in gears of like, what's more horrifying uh, watching recreations of war on TV or like sort of these, the static pulsing TV that you're just staring at. Yeah. And also how, how do in the 1980s, these, because as the movie explains, you know, it's been built upon several different graveyards and that upon indigenous land that was then overdeveloped and everything, just this whole history of erasure uh, to see the ghosts specifically initially emerge through the television, through, you know, this, saturation of like current media and escape uh this this thing that is comfortably a part of your overdeveloped home in an area where you know all sorts of history has is literally being paved over it's really interesting that that's kind of the point of attack initially i think thematically and i also agree sam that i think that this movie does a great job recognizing the limitations of its budget and scaling things appropriately up until the end when it gets to like full tilt madness because the last like 20 minutes of this movie are bonkers and really really in a great way because it's so many small moments building up to that i think my favorite moment in the movie and it's such a simple practical effect is the one shot chair sequence where where she's in the kitchen with her daughter and she goes to like just do something under the sink and we see that the chairs are at the table and like they've all been pushed out. So she pushes them back in. Then she goes about her task. And in the same shot, at when she turns around, all of the chairs are stacked like perfectly and so abnormally on this table. And she's like gasps and it's like shocking to all of us as an audience. But just that it's this brilliant one take shot where like if you have a really keen eye, you can maybe spot like a crew member's reflection in an appliance on the counter. But otherwise, it's absolutely seamless. The book, you can see the fake plant shaking a little. Like I watched that. There might have been one or two tells. Yeah. But, <laughs> but honestly, no, right. I, I don't even care. It's yeah. just so it's so shocking and so impactful. Every time that's the, that for me is the scariest moment of the movie because not because something scary is happening necessarily, because at that time it's still playful. They're still discovering these like kind of like fun interactive elements of this haunting that they're engaging with, obviously like sliding across the floor and the scene after and everything. But so it's, it's more of just like a, a a shock than it is a terror at that point. But to me, it's the scariest part of the movie because it's done so well as a practical effect. Another part of the movie, Dave, that you've mentioned that has stuck with you is the infamous asshole guy of the the exorcism team right and he is like tearing his face off in the bathroom that's horrific but that's another scene that has like been redone a lot <laughs> too and i actually i don't know so i put like links in my notes i don't know if anybody clicked those links um but one of the movies to kind of like do a, a parody or a spoof on that is Casper <laughs> that came out in the early nineties. Um, oh yeah. I know what you're talking, seen you're talking. <laughs> and it, I mean, 
um, that scene in particular, Bill Pullman is like going through a lot, right? Like um, you see Clint Eastwood and the Crypt Keeper and a couple other things, but it's like it's Mel Gibson, ref- yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, Harvey Keitel is a Harvey Keitel. I can't remember. I don't think he's in the mix that I recall. He might be. Who? Oh man, who is the other? Pre- anyway, um, but that's like a like a small reference to that scene too. So <laughs> it's another one of those. Where I'm like, damn it! <laughs> like this hasn't been ruined, but it's just like maybe that's the the good part of the legacy. It's also kind of a little snapshot of something like that in an action movie called Dead Heat that we're gonna get to as this weird jump scare. But yeah, I think that's that's another thing too about this movie that it's it's so clear that that's a Hooper scene, that that's like Toby Hooper horror very visceral, very bloody, very interactive versus Spielberg horror, which is what you don't see until it happens with the chairs. So I think there's this beautiful balance and duality between the two of them that maintains an interesting and unpredictable horror movie up until it becomes just sort of like a total mindfuck and madness at the end. I do think in something I read that Hooper and Spielberg like didn't want the movie to be rated R um, so in order mm-hmm. to get it down to it, did PG-13 come around because of this movie or that was after was that temple up, of doom here two later mm-hmm. straight, straight at PG. So they had to get rid of the, either they had to get rid of the other deaths that were supposed to happen, like in the script, or they had to just like write the script around that. So the only death that happens in the movie is Tweety Bird <laughs> at the very beginning. I also thought that seems really hilarious this time around. I never noticed that the mom's flushing the toilet before she's about to drop it in. <laughs> no, I, I love the scenes of the of the parents' dynamic. Like, I don't think I had really registered that the the movie really fully fleshes out the interesting dynamics of this family, the dynamics between the parents. I was reading some reviews that kind of were. Uh, discussing the movie through this lens of of the evolving or like the exploration of family dynamics and like I didn't quite agree with this but the notion that like they were ill-equipped to be parents at the beginning of the movie and then they have to go through this sort of traumatic experience to rise to the occasion to be like to sort of fulfill this conception of what like responsible parents are I wasn't really like totally buying that analysis, but, uh, it is, it is really, I I love the scene, like when they're like smoking weed and he's like reading the Reagan biography and they are jumping on the bed. And I was like, there's some really fun parents smoking weed in movies. It was like, (laughs) yeah, it was like some playful mo. Yeah. So that critique of like them being irresponsible and then, you know, maturing through this poltergeist, uh, invasion or whatever. But, um, but I, I really didn't remember a lot of the parents as being dynamic characters. And I was like, oh, this is this is cool. This is fun. There's definitely one of my favorite moments also in the film is just uh, when the medium first arrives or when, when one of the mediums first arrive. And um, the mother, Jo Beth Williams, makes the observation to the the investigators in this clearly upset, but like in a convincingly lived in way, it's like, we hear her better on this channel. Don't ask me why. Like there's there's just such a like weird pain to that. There's also this really great moment later in the film where Rubenstein is at urging 
whichever parent is more like dominant and threatening to the daughter to step in and be the voice saying, go away from the light. And you can say her like saying to like, um, to Craig T. Nelson, the father, like, tell her you're going to spank her if you, if she doesn't come here. And he's like, oh, come on. I've never spanked her. This is ridiculous. But like insisting that it go on and the mother being so pained and her urging her to go away from the light, which seems like a counterintuitive instinct. I think they do both do an amazing job acting as parents in the film. I think that's, um, a, a nice Spielberg touch. We had a great conversation during the mm-hmm. Jaws episode about that one moment with uh, the father, the sheriff sitting down with his son and, and that tender exchange between the young son and the father. And I really think, again, showcased is Spielberg's ability to, to in fresh ways, capture different family dynamics and, and build out kids and parents as sort of fully developed beings instead of like falling back into sort of like tropish characterizations of like parents will never understand and ki- you know or kids are always getting into trouble and it, it sort of disrupts that uh that those sort of archetypes in really great ways yeah and that that's a big reason why i keep returning to the hooper spielberg dynamic because like i don't know how they thought they were going to slip this one by anyone this movie like any spielberg movie just reeks of Spielberg in such a great way, but. Also just like, (laughs) this is so insane that Spielberg even had to like write an op-ed in like, like the newspaper, an apology to Toby Hooper. That's like, I didn't mean to insinuate that you didn't direct the movie. Like these comments were taken sort of out of context, blah, blah, blah. Like Steven well, and, Spielberg had to do that. And there's legal ramifications too for breaching contracts and mm-hmm. who gets credited where on the lines and the credits. And um, so I think that angle of the two is also interesting of like how much could Spielberg, it's, I view it as how much could Spielberg get away with without actually being credited as director seems to sort of yeah. be what was going on, which I think is just super fascinating industry politics. So what was Hooper's uh, attitude towards this? Or like, what were his his thoughts about this dynamic? Like, was he, did he feel like Spielberg was overreaching and like on set too much or? By all accounts, from what I found, it seems like there was an understanding between the two of them. Okay, interesting. That like, this this was Steven's idea. This was his script and his idea, but he couldn't make it right now, but desperately wanted to. So Hooper was like, I can kind of step in and like officially take the credit for this if you want to make this movie. And I'll also have my own, uh, you know, like reasonably apportioned input as well. He seemed pretty cool as a cucumber about it in every interview that I saw. Mm -hmm. And like very just nonchalant about the whole arrangement. And and all the cast members too were, I believe all the cast members said that this was Hooper's film, not Spielberg's, which adds another layer of texture to it. Except for, was it Zelda, right? Because she didn't like mm-hmm. Toby Hooper. I think right. that, um, oh God, I've read so many different articles. One article said that she didn't like Hooper because he was using drugs. Like, <laughs> I guess at the time that they were filming. Yeah. Like, the days yeah. that she was yeah. there. R.I.P. Toby the, Hooper, I, by the way. He was a, he's a oh, master. Yeah. Pour one out. And I think I read that all the cast members went to bat for Hooper and were like, I don't know why she like, 
took that slight against him. Like we all had a good time with him on set. Seems to be what the majority of the cast members have. have That's said. a funny way to put it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some people are just, you know what? It be what it be. Some people are who they are, and they're not going to change. Um, also, but, you're still accidentally in a Spielberg movie, so like, just you know, just bide your time. It'll it'll be a success. Everybody made their money. I think everyone's probably pretty happy with how the first one turned out. <laughs> yeah, right. And they're still like calling you back for Poltergeist three, like. Shush. Um, anyway, so when it comes to the legacy, I think the legacy of this movie should be um, the the family, the heartwarming family unit, the the simple, but when you're going to blow it up, blow it up. And I don't know, I can really get behind that. So instead of, I don't know, instead of the, the poltergeist curse, maybe instead of it's like the, the, the poltergeist manual of like, how to make a simple movie good. And, um, you know, all the respect to the people who were involved in this film in both the, the, they're in all three in all three of these films. Um, anything else folks wanted to say about Poltergeist before we kind of wrap this conversation up? One character I appreciated, and I don't have a whole lot to say is the neighbor character. <laughs> Especially yeah. the scene where they go, or there's the fight with the remote of like, that's such a <laughs> pre 21st century thing of like your neighbor's remote can affect your TV. And when they go over, cause they're like experiencing these supernatural things. They're like, have you, yeah. The parents like, have you been experiencing weird things? And he's like, what are you talking? Like just playing it so straight and so serious as the um, Joe Beth and Craig are just like, unraveling at the seams and it's, uh, i've never my family's never been be- bitten by mosquitoes i've never had a problem with mosquitoes. it's just like on and on it's like it's a wonderful example of like little characters just adding texture to a film and enriching it yeah that's a great moment and also the the end of the movie i mean craig t nelson just going like full steam at this real estate developer grabbing him by the lapels and just shouting and shouting so well that it's so iconic it's just you moved the bodies, but you didn't move the headstones. It's just, it's such a great like way to punctuate that movie as far as like making so clear in one sentence exactly what's happening during a chaotic sequence that explains everything, especially as bodies are shooting out of the the foundation of the pool and falling out onto Joe Beth Williams and like how amazing that sequence is. It's really just like such a roller coaster at the end of the movie and everyone emotionally pitches it appropriately up until it has this kind of like nice calming moment after the house has collapsed in on itself miraculously. It looks incredible. Everyone in the neighborhood is just kind of stunned with this, like, you know, symbolic realization of the troubled ground upon which they built their lives. Um, but then just at the hotel, yeah, the sweetness and the, the Spielbergian sweetness and cherry on top of them all going into the hotel, pulling back still a little bit as the frame continues and just like, it feels like, okay, it's over. But the one last joke of them wheeling out the TV. I don't, the, the, the movie resolves, but I felt like the slow pan out from the motel, that shot being quite unsettling. And it, uh, especially once Craig T. Nelson pulls the TV out and then you see the neon glow of the, of the motel sign. I was like, that's speaking of ways to end a movie that slow pan out uh, into credits is a great, great ending. And especially telling as like a built-in sequel setup, because at one point they explained the difference between a haunting and a poltergeist. A haunting is a residential 
phenomenon, but a poltergeist is something that travels with people. And that being kind of what sets us up for the second movie, you know? Um, what I would really love instead of like sequels or instead of remakes, I want a short um, and I want this short to be focused on people who live next to the Freelings, maybe like five or six houses down as the caskets are just like rising out of the ground, just like sitting down for family dinner. They're talking about, you know, oh, well, it's a good thing that grandpa's in remission now. Like we're all like really now we can move forward. And then just like a from the <laughs> That's all I want. I told you they were smoking weed over there. Now look, their pool's littered with corpses. <laughs> this is Reagan's America, after all. That's it. That's what I want. <laughs> uh, well, the last thing I want to say about Poltergeist is that any Spice Girl fans, please go to YouTube and watch the video for too much um baby spy so the whole whole concept of the the music video is that they're like referencing famous movies and baby spice is poltergeist so what go take a look at it i linked it in the in my notes if you want to go i'm gonna check that out yeah um anyway any any final words last thoughts i have i have a can i can i share a spice girl story real quick please (laughs) so do you know the alan degeneres mobile game psych where it's like there's like you play with a group of friends on your phone and it's like if there were the four of us to be like what's christine's what what was christine's dream job when she was a kid and you like fill in the answers and people vote on who it is but one of them was i forget one of our friends is like if let's just let's just call him chris if chris was a spice girl what would his name be and one one of our friends put garbage spice <laughs> 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 and that one got unanimous votes out of like seven people in the room. Oh, that is <laughs> so so gar- garbage spice. Um. Okay. Well, I feel like I made no sense this episode, but you know what? That's okay. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes you're just talking about a bunch of human remains coming out of the ground and causing not a curse, but just causing a lot of commotion. Anyway. I hope you folks enjoyed this random rambly episode and um, no matter where you are, what you're doing, I hope you're having a good whatever and tune in next week. Bye.